we are live. All right. Good to see you, man. How you been? Oh man, life's been uh, life's been pretty good. I've been well. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's um, came across your podcast, well, your podcast, man, and like, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it a ton. It's been a while since I've seen you for sure. Been a good, uh, good couple years at least. <laughs> <laughs> at least, <laughs> at least, at least, I guess since high school. So, yeah, it's been a while, yeah, but what, seven years, eight years. Yeah, probably at least that. But I'm glad that you came across my podcast, and then I found you, I guess, again on Instagram and started reading your blog, and was just like. I mean, I started like ripping through them. They are so good. Dude, I really appreciate that because like I second guess everything. <laughs> well, all right. So what's your blog called? We can start with that. Okay. All right. So the name of my blog, um, and I can't take credit for that. Um, it was actually my girlfriend who gave me that idea. Um, it's called um, From Chained to Changed, right? And so it's kind of a... Uh, a mixing pot of different things like it's part me um part my story and then part of like how my experiences have have shaped my worldview um mm. and really it's just a place for me to like write out ideas and throw them out there into the internet yeah yeah how long have you been doing it for um i started it a little over a year ago gotcha um yeah, started a little over a year ago, um, but I've been writing for a couple years now. Yeah, um, well, you can tell. I mean, you can tell in, in your voice, like the way that things are written, it is eloquent. Like the language that you use is oftentimes very apt for, you know, the subject that you're talking about. It's descriptive. So you're a phenomenal writer, much better than I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, like, like that really means a lot. And like, I always try and use words deliberately. You know, because mm. like, I honestly believe that like language is the most important tool we have. Like, it's literally how we shape and structure, like not just our lives, but like everything, yeah. like reality itself. Like there is nothing without words. Um, and like, I just feel like, like we use them so carelessly, like, because we have, you know, conversations every day. Yeah. Like we don't think about our words. Um but I love writing like, and I love language and the use of it. And I just, I think it's a powerful tool. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And I, I absolutely think that there's this piece of using words well and writing well and using, using words in the way that they're kind of needed to be used in order to convey a certain point that has almost kind of been lost on our generation in some ways, um, especially through the use of technology where, I mean, it's, the word when I'm texting somebody, I'm not concerned about the language that I'm using. Right. <laughs> like, and there's a, there's a huge, I feel like there's a lot of that that's been lost where previous generations had to write all the time if they wanted to communicate with one another. Um, but it's almost like language has been diluted a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Like you look at like social media is a great example, dude. Like, like our, the way we use language has been like, it's almost like it's evolved and it's evolved so rapidly that our understanding hasn't been able to catch, to, to keep up right. with the pace of change. Um, and I see it all the time, man. Like definitions are fluid now. 
Very much and, so. Right. And it's like, honestly, like that terrifies me. Right. Because like when you're changing words, like you're not just changing the word itself. Like you're changing the way people perceive that word and hear that word, hmm. you know? And it's like, all right. So you take five little kids, right? You teach them the word ball. Okay. And you teach one kid that a ball is a ball as we understand it. Um, another one, you teach them that a ball is a different object, but then the other kids, you teach them that ball is a verb, right? To one kid, you teach him ball to, for him to understand it as run, right? Another kid to understand it as lay down. And then like they hear that word and they don't understand anything, right? You're going to get right. different reactions everywhere. And so like when you're in your own little corner of the internet, the words you're using with fluid definitions, and then you come out of that corner into the real world or in conversation with somebody else, hmm. like you can't even communicate. Yeah. And because you're talking about two completely different things, but you're using the same word. And like, I feel like we're seeing the ramifications of that in a lot of areas. Oh, absolutely. I think especially in politics, I think politics is a fantastic example of that <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, you said your, you know, your, your blog is kind of like a melting pot of a lot of different things. And one of the things that you mentioned was kind of your story. Um, I would right. love to talk through, uh, I mean, as much as you're willing and able, uh, kind of your story, um, you know, starting wherever you want to start, um, and kind of just hashing through some of what that looks like and how that has kind of like influenced a lot of what you're writing now and kind of who you are. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll start with the with the hook, right? Um, I am a convicted felon. Uh, I did two and a half years in the South Carolina Department of Corrections. Um, now the story of how I got to that point, um, childhood's normal, right? Great childhood. Um, you know, grew up right here in uh, South Carolina. Um, good old Palmetto State. <laughs> yeah, good old Palmetto State. And uh you know, good family life, good upbringing. Um, and so like, really, like when I think about my story, I think it starts when I was 14. Um, uh, one day uh, after school, got a knock on the door. It was my uncle. Um, turns out that uh, my little brother had been shot. Um, he was at a friend's house. They got hold of a, a 22 rifle that had one round in the chamber. And uh, he was 11 years old um, and he died, right? And so like for anybody, that's gonna be a life altering event. Um, I was 14 years old when that happened, which is like the age that you don't want anything crazy to happen. Right. Right, like as far as like psychological development goes, like that's the age you don't want it. Um, so like that happened and I still, I still don't know the ways in which his loss has affected me. Hmm. Right. Like, obviously it has like, that's, that's one of two defining points in my life. Yeah. Like in terms of like, if you ask me like what made me into the person I am today, that's one of two events that, shaped me um and like 
going back to words, like one of the things that has helped me the most is learning to articulate grief, hmm. right? Um, like learning how to put words to the feelings. Um, but we can kind of touch on that later. Yeah. Um, so my brother died. Um, my world 180, like everything that was my life was gone like overnight. Um, and I had no idea how to live with that. And then there was nobody else who could help me learn to live with that. Yeah. Right. Like my parents, um, they're great parents. They've been there for me throughout my entire life, through everything I've done. Like they have been there. Mm. Um, but there is no instruction manual for what to do when one of your children suddenly dies. Mm. Um, and so like, not only did they lose a child, but they had another child. So they're trying to deal with their own grief and help me at the same time. Yeah. And it, it just didn't work. Um, so what happened was I was looking for a way out, right? Like I wanted something to, help me not feel the pain that I was feeling. Um, and I found opiates, right? Like I'm not one of those kids that like started out smoking weed and then decided to try other things. Yeah. Like, um, I was literally in school one day. Um, guy I knew told me he, uh, he had some Percocet and I'm like, what's Percocet? You know, he says, listen, man, it'll make you feel good. You can sleep through class. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let me go to sleep, you yeah. know, because um, like, that's something I still remember, man, like, just like being in school, I was a freshman in high school, and like, like, I didn't know how to handle that, right? I felt like everyone at all times was looking at me waiting for me to break. Yeah. Mm. And I knew how close I was to breaking at any given moment. Yeah. So I found opiates. Yeah. And well, and I was, I was going to say, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, oh, so for no, those that, I guess for those that don't know that are listening in. So Will and I um, kind of grew up together. We went to the same high school, same middle school and high school together. Um, and our younger brothers were in the same grade in the same class together. Um, and I guess it's, it's a, uh, I remember all of it so clearly, um, absolutely shook our entire community. Right. And, um, I, I will never forget seeing you at school for the first time again. Um, I have a clear memory in my head of you coming in and, uh, sitting down at the lunch table. And I, you know, that, that description of you saying like, you know, I felt like everyone was looking at me and just waiting for me to break. Like, I remember, sitting down and looking at you and being like, I have no idea what to say. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. I have, I don't know. I was four, I was 14 too, you know? And I was like, yeah. I, I don't know what to say to somebody. And, you know, coming home and having a conversation with my brother and my mom and us just sitting around and being like, what, what do we say? What do we like? How, how could, I don't know how to help, you know? And, um, yeah. it's a, it's amazing how that, you know, one event, just like it, it 
creates it has such a ripple effect across so many people and i i'm now looking back on it i would argue in a lot of ways it's had an incredibly positive impact um which i think we can get into later but um yeah i will i mean the idea of and like i I love that phrase you used of like being able to put words to your grief like being able to express that um and words that are beneficial right that help you to uh kind of like put some of your feelings out um and then not only that but you know learning how to be able to use words correctly or not say anything at all at the right moments when someone is grieving in an incredible way is so important yeah and i'll make a quick comment on that right like when something terrible happens to someone like a lot of the times there is there are no words you can say mm. that are going to make them feel any different whatsoever right like i'll never forget man uh the night of my brother's visitation right like i thought that was never going to end mm. like i've never seen so many people like lined up just walking through and I, dude i can't tell you the number of people who came through who, who came through and said something to the effect of god has a plan in this or he's in a better place and like well-meaning comments right right but to me like in my 14 year old mind like that was the absolute worst thing you could possibly said Mm. right like i would rather have heard you know what like life sucks and i'm sorry this happened right because that that's the truth of it right like sometimes life is terrible yeah right Like there's going to be tragedy. There's going to be suffering. And sometimes there's nothing that's going to make that okay. Right. And that like, that's a, that's a really hard concept to come to terms with. Right. Like we all inherently know that, but I think there's a difference between like understanding it and accepting that sometimes life is going to be brutal. Um, absolutely. And it's tough. And it's one of those things that like everything in us wants to deny, wants to fight against. Like there's this always this part of me in the face of incredible difficulty or in, in upon, upon hearing something that is incredibly tragic to always want to think like, you know, the world we live in isn't so bad, right? Is it as bad as it seems like do terrible things like this actually happen? And the answer, of course, is is yes. Like we live in a world where horrible things happen every single day, and like understanding how to like take that in and not internalize it, right? And not you know absolutely beat yourself up and destroy yourself over it as a result of it, but instead to you know and look at it and just try and make some sort of positive change in the right direction is difficult to do, but it's a it's a must, you know. Yeah. And like, I think that's necessary, right? Like, I think when, like when tragedy does come, like you have to make something from it. Yeah. Because if you like that to me, like that's the only power we have over the situation, right? Like the world is arbitrary, like Mm -hmm. absurd things happen. And so like when you can take something terrible and you can use that, potential to manifest something good in the world then like and only then can you bring any sort of meaning to it only then can you bring any sort of purpose to it right um 
Hmm. Because the world is arbitrary right. and it is absurd. It is. That's a fact. And you can't stop that. No, yeah. <laughs> you cannot stop it for sure. Yeah. So, um, where, sorry, where were we? I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, um, you found, I guess we're at the place found Percocet. Yeah. So 14 year old me is starting a very destructive year long, uh, battle with drug addiction. Um, so like once I found opiates, it was over with, right? Like, why was I going to go to therapy and sit there for you know hour and a half, two hours and feel awful hmm. and talk about my feelings when I can take a pill and not feel anything. And not only am I not going to feel anything negative, but I'm going to feel like me again. Right. Like, right. like for me to socialize, like in the aftermath of that, like I had to be, I had to have a substance because otherwise like my insecurities and my grief just felt so overwhelming that I didn't want to be around anybody. Hmm. Right. So for me to even like, for me to go to school and sit in class and have friends, like I had to have a substance and that was how the next few years of my life went. And um, December of 2010, this is about 10, 11 months after my brother died. Um, uh, first night at Christmas break, um, wasn't going anywhere, wasn't doing anything, but I had a lot of pills and I was gonna get high and play some major league baseball on my PlayStation. And, uh, took a wrong combination, lost track, woke up in the hospital. And uh, that was the first time I overdosed. Hmm. Um, and like, like I didn't just like take one too many and go to Grand Strand and Myrtle Beach. Like I took a lot too many and I had to be airlifted to MUSC in Charleston. Yeah. Um, and like, I could have died. Yeah. Probably should have died. But like that had like no effect whatsoever. Like it didn't matter, right? Like my mental state at the time is like my brother is dead. Yeah. What else can happen? Yeah. You know, it's like that. Like there was nothing else that could hold a candle to that. There was nothing that could scare me. There was nothing that it could intimidate me. They're like, I've lost the most important person in my world. Yeah. Right. Like I've lost my best friend. There's nothing else this world can do to me. That's going to hurt me. So I didn't care. Right. Yeah. I'm going to keep doing drugs. And you know what? Why do I really need an education when, why, like, what's the, what's the purpose? What's the point in it all? And uh, that's really when uh, the nihilistic viewpoint started showing up for me. Hmm. Um, I grew up in a Christian household um, and not just like Sunday morning church. Like, like I, I grew up with a Christian family, right? Yeah. We didn't just go to church. Like our family practiced the belief system, you know? Yeah. And like when Matthew died, man, like at first I tried to cling to God. Right. Um, but 
14 year old me didn't even understand the doctrine of Christianity. Right. right. I had my Sunday school education. I had my, my youth group education, but it was all surface level. And this is, this is one reason why I will always encourage people to challenge your belief system, whatever it is, attack it with everything that you have. Yeah. Because if you don't, then it's going to be weak. Yeah. And life is not weak. And when life strikes and your belief system collapses, you're done. You're in a bad spot. There is no back from that. Right. You're in a terrible place when that happens. And that's where I was at at 14 year old, right? Like everything I believed about the world had shattered. Yeah. And I'm sitting there holding the pieces, looking around for help. And there was nobody that knew how to help me. Hmm. Um, and so it really was like, I was, I was 15 at the time I overdosed and I mean, like nihilism is the only word for it at that point. Right. There was, there was no point to anything. There was no purpose to life. There, like, there was just nothing that had any value or meaning that was worth pursuing. So I continued down the road of self-destruction. Um, I dropped out of high, uh, I dropped out of high school in 10th grade. Um, when I was, when I was 17, uh, uh, that's when I found heroin and, uh, started down that road and like opiates, like that class of drugs in general is bad enough. Yeah. Right. And heroin is the unregulated opiate. Um, and like to this day, I have never experienced a more powerful feeling than a heroin rush. Hmm. Right. Like people who've never been there, um, there's a tendency to look at addicts and like scratch your head and say, like, what the heck are you doing? Right. You know, like, like why, like, why would you do this to yourself? Yeah. And like, that's because they have never felt that feeling before. Um, and like, there's a reason like human beings aren't meant to experience that level of pleasure. Right. Like I honestly believe that like, it's just not a good situation. Um, so I moved on the heroin and I destroyed everything I touched. Um, I, people who cared about me, I pushed them out of my life. Um, if you stayed close, eventually I was going to hurt you in some way, shape or form. Um, and I was not a good human being hmm. at all, bar none, um, no moral or ethical standards whatsoever. Um, and so it continued, um, the event that sent me to prison um, came in the midst of heroin withdrawals. Um, really good friend of mine uh, was in the same spot I was. We were both heroin addicts. Um, we were both out of money. We were both 18 years old. <clears throat> and we both felt indestructible, hmm. you know? Yeah. And like... I had made a lot of bad choices, right? Um, 
this is going to sound weird, but in some sense, I'm, okay, I'm not glad I committed a crime that sent me to prison. Right. Right. Let's not, let's, let's, but it happened. Right. Mm. And since then, the path that that choice took me down, I appreciate what the experience has shaped me into. Um, hmm. So what happened? Well, we were going through heroin withdrawals and there were a bunch of ideas, right? Um, steal something, get some money, yada, yada. But then we thought, you know what, let's cut out the middleman. Let's go straight to the source. So we, uh, we, robbed a pharmacy yeah right um it wasn't violent and i'm not saying that to justify it in any way um but that's what it was the, there was no weapon there was no physical uh threat right um we, we did our research right um it's like a bank like they're gonna give you whatever you want so you get out of there without getting violent right so that's what we did and we got arrested for it um, I went to jail, uh, bailed out, spent a year of my life on house arrest, wore an ankle monitor. Mm. Um, and I was offered a very light, almost get out of jail free kind of sentence. Um, I went into a program called drug court, which is basically like an intensive outpatient drug rehabilitation program right um so i entered this program with a 10-year sentence hanging over my head um and i did really solid for about six months uh relapsed on heroin overdosed again hmm. um and did good for a little while longer and relapsed again did good for not so long this time relapsed a third time and they terminated my drug court and i was sent to the south carolina department of corrections to serve a 10-year sentence for strong arm robbery i was 21 years old and earlier i said you know there's there's two events in my life that i feel have defined me more than any other the first being the death of my brother and the second is the time that I spent in prison. Hmm. Um, so in SCDC, right? Um, everybody first, you go uh, to Kirkland. It's in Columbia. And it's like a general, um, it's called R&E, uh, reception and evaluation. Um, they, you know, run your blood. They do your, you know, TB test. And basically they make sure you don't have a, a deadly contagious disease right um they evaluate your mental state or what passes for mental evaluation right um and they determine your custody level um i was 21 and so i went to the dorm for 18 to 25 year old inmates um who were serving straight time not the YOA inmates and what is uh YOA? You say YOA. Okay, so, yeah, YOA is um, uh, Youthful Offenders Act, and basically it's for that same age range. Mm -hmm. Um, so like if you're 18 to 25, you're young and stupid. 
um, you commit a crime, you can get a YOA sentence, which basically is a sentence that because you're young, they're gonna they're gonna put you in prison for six months, let you out on parole for three years. Gotcha. You know? Okay. Um, because sometimes young people do stupid things. Right. Um, right. Um, and the difference here is like the YOAs have petty crimes, right? You might have a third degree burglary, car theft, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but I went to the dorm with 18 year old kids who were doing 60 years for murder. Right. Um, and hmm. I grew up in white middle-class America. Right. I had no idea what I was walking into. Like literally no idea. Um, prison is wild, man. Yeah. Like it is absolutely insane. Um, <clears throat> What do you uh, uh what do you mean by that? When you say it's wild or when you say it's insane, like what is it just the overall like feeling of it or is it the stuff that happens? Like what <laughs> I don't know, I mean literally everything about it, right? right. Like the way it personally feels, <clears throat> the way it runs, like what it does to you, like there is no logical sense to our prison system. Um so one of the things that like has stuck with me um is you go to the scdc they give you an inmate number right all right my my uh scdc number is three six eight eight five one right and that's not just your number like that's your identity hmm. um when you stand up for roll call count the officer walks by your cell he doesn't ask you your name he asks you your number right right um you go anywhere for anything they're not asking you your name they're asking you your number um and i don't know what shocked me the most right in that initial experience um there's two things i would point to one would be the violence hmm. that is within our prison system and with that i don't even mean the frequency but the intensity yeah right like i'd been in fist fights right like in school and stuff right um a high school fist fight and a penitentiary fight are not the same thing um like i had never witnessed with my own eyes the intensity of the violence that i saw in scdc and like that's something that sticks with you that's yeah. not something that just leave behind you um and uh the first incident like that that uh really got to me um it was a gang initiation right hmm. um gangs rule the south carolina department of corrections um and i know uh, one of my blogs i wrote and it's a very true sentence that the law in prison is the law of gang hierarchy right like whatever yard you go to, whatever dorm you go to, your experience there is going to be dependent upon which gang has a certain level of control on that yard. Hmm. Um, so I was, uh, R and E, we were locked down 24 hours a day. We got out three times a day to walk to the cafeteria to eat. 
And so that's when everything happened. Yeah. In the five minutes to and from, that is when everything happened. Um, so we, uh, we were going to breakfast one morning because early morning's the best time for things to go down because most officers are still in the briefing room. Um, hmm. So cells pop, officer walks downstairs, and uh, this kid, man, he was, uh, he was 19 years old, and he had decided that he wanted to be a gangster disciple. So uh, seven of his future brothers um, took him out of his cell, and they beat him for i can't remember what it is for geez um it's some stupid number like 77 seconds or hmm. 74 seconds that's what it is 74 seconds um and they beat this boy right and i'm not talking punched him a few times pushing him around i'm talking they've got this kid on the ground uh like heel stomping like his face dude like mm. yeah and then uh what got me was so it, that happened, right? And it's crazy. And I was just stunned, man. Yeah. Like, how, walk, I mean, how can you stairs, not be? Right. And like to walk down the stairs to go to breakfast, I've got to walk by that, you know? Mm. And so I'm just kind of chilling, like waiting to see like what's going to happen here. So uh, the dude's counting. He's tapping on the door. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. He finally gets the 74 and they stop. <clears throat> they try and pick him up off the ground and he's not getting up. I mean, he is out. Right. But there's blood everywhere. He's, I mean, he's leaking. Yeah. And we, like, we can't have that. Right. There can't be evidence. Right. I mean, his, his body's evidence enough. Right. But we're going to clean everything up. So, <clears throat> uh we would change uniforms twice a week and what would happen is uh people would keep their old uniform for situations like this so now we go get the old uniforms so we can mop the blood up take them to the shower rinse them out come back <clears throat> until we can wash all the blood down the drain and this is done not scatteredly not off the wall this is done with purpose and right. with very coordinated right um so yeah r and e shocked me um and then the other thing about prison that stuck with me is the dehumanization you experience right well i was gonna right. i was gonna ask if you felt when you said earlier that you didn't have a name you had a number Right. When you said when they walk up to you and they're, you know, they're walking by your cell and they ask you what your number is. They don't ask you your name. If you go anywhere, they don't ask you your name. They ask you your number. Do you think that they that that is purposeful to like for to dehumanize the people that are in prison? Or do you think they're just trying to keep track of everybody? Right. <laughs> I think they can justify it by trying to keep track. Right. All right. Um, but honestly, like it has to be to intentionally make you feel less than human Yeah, because there's no other logical reason for it. Right. Cause consider this, you've been on a yard for 15 years. All right. Every officer that comes in every day, you know, yeah, they know you. Why do they need to ask you your number? Right. You know, 
they know your name, they know who you are, hmm. but you still have to stand up and recite that number. Uh, one of my cellmates at Kershaw, he was 67 years old. Um, he had been in SCDC since the late 1970s. All right. He, he had a life sentence. Yeah. Um, every night he had to stand up and recite his number and he'd been at Kershaw for seven years, you know? Yeah. So like that's purposeful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, so when you get the R and E, right, one of the first things they do is they shave your head bald. Um, and like, for me, like that was the moment where I was like, Oh crap, I'm in prison. Yeah. Like <laughs> when they shave your head, head, that's the moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, like watching my hair fall. I'm like, Oh crap. Yeah. Like this is real. I'm not going home tomorrow. Yeah. Like I'm stuck. All right. So they shave your head in prison. Everybody wears the same thing. Right. Right. Same uniform. Um, once you get out of R and E, um, there's rules and regulations, right? Like your hair can't be longer than a quarter inch. Um, it used to be, uh, you can't grow beards. I think they changed that rule. Um, right. But all of these rules to keep you confined. Hmm. Right. Um, and so like one of the things I couldn't figure out, right. Was why does everybody want to join a gang? Right. I was going to ask that. But, so I'm glad that you're answering yeah. that. <laughs> Right. Okay. So like for me, um, I didn't go to SCDC with the intention. Okay. Yeah. Like I'm a joining gang. I'm gonna get in this and that. Um, several times the opportunity presented itself, but I just, I never had the desire. Right. And the reason being was because of what I saw at R and E. All right. Um, in today's day and age, we talk a lot about race, right? right? Well, I can tell you this. All right. This is a fact. You can take this to the bank. If you're white and you walk into prison without a gang affiliation, you're a target. Yeah. All right. Because there's this idea in the Department of Corrections that white equals weak. Hmm. You're a prey. And to make it even better, when I went to r and &E, I do. I was like 145. I was small and I had no idea what the heck was going on. Yeah. Right. Um, and I looked around and I saw other people like me who it took one time, right. They, they'd get robbed one time. They get jumped one time and then it's like, okay, yeah, I need to join a gang. Yeah. And so I was looking at it like, okay, you're like, you're weak, bro. Yeah. Like, and so that was what, turn me off of it. Um, but I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out like, what is it? Right. Because it's not just for protection. Right. I think at the core of gang activity, especially in prison is people looking for an identity. Hmm. Right. Because when you go to prison, you are stripped of the identity that you have walking in right. there. Right. You're, you're taken away from your hometown. You're taken away from your friends and your family. Like everything about your life is gone. And you step into a place where you wear a tan uniform, green Crocs, and you have to walk around with your ID badge that has your number on it. It has your name on it too, but nobody cares about that. Right. Right. 
and then your activity is very limited, right? What can you do? Well, you can play cards, you can watch TV. Um, there, there, there's not much to do there. So who are you, you know? Yeah. And walking around by yourself, you're nobody, right? But if I'm walking around, if, if I'm a sergeant for the gangster disciples, if I'm a shot caller, I have status, right? Right. I have people supporting to me, you know? I can say, hey, you know what? When this boy comes back, you're going to go take his canteen hmm. and it's going to happen. And so like more than it, like to me, like that's that's what makes the most sense. Right. Is people looking for something to belong to so that they know who they are. Yeah. Hmm. And not only that, I, I feel like there's so there's so much of this like human experience that is so dependent upon community. Like, uh, like we are just meant as human beings to be in and with community, right? Not even necessarily people that are like us, just people that we can communicate with people that we can talk to, that we can feel like we get along with and that hopefully can, can know us. Right. And we all want to be known deeply. And I think that there's this idea and, you know, that, you know, especially if you're in a place where none of that is offered at all, right? Like you're stripped of everything that you have. I feel like my number one desire would be to get with people that I felt like had my back and I had theirs. And like these earlier, you said like when they were initiating that guy, it was like, these were his future brothers. Right. Yeah. And like there, there's nothing to me there, there really is nothing in this world, I think, as strong as the connection that a brother has with a brother. And I don't mean that as like sisters don't have strong connection, right? But yeah, just right. in the sense of like siblings, like when you're, when you're looking to give words to the strongest relationship that you have, you describe it as a brother. Yeah, right. So for me, like the sibling relationship, like your sibling is the only, well, you might have multiple, right? But your sibling is that person who grew up with an almost identical experience to yours. Right. Right. There is nobody in this world who can understand you and your life more than your sibling. Right. So yeah, like undoubtedly that is a powerful bond. That is a powerful draw. And like, in a sense, like, yeah, like that's what people are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's like, like there's so many different like factors and, you know, twists and turns. Um, but I, I, so when I look at what I learned from observing gang activity mm. in prison, right. Um, I'll say this. Um, the most dependable group of people I met in prison, right? Are people that our society would absolutely demonize, hmm. right? Interesting. Um, so I got the Kershaw, right? This, this is a, this is a big boy yard, level two STG yard. Um, STG stands for security threat group. Okay. Um, basically means you get sent there if you've been flagged for gang activity, for gang activity, or if you've uh, had a disciplinary charge, I got a disciplinary charge. Hmm. Um, so I go to Kershaw and uh, my first week at Kershaw, I'm a 21 year old white kid, never been to prison. 
And everybody knows that. Right. Everybody knows that. Um, so my first week, go to the canteen, come back, and uh, I get back to my cell, and there's some people waiting on me. Um, and long story short, um, they they got the bag. I got beat, but I didn't just let them take it. You know what right. I'm saying? Um, at this time, I'm still about 145, but it's like I, I still had enough self-respect to – at least fight for what swing back, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. But listen, you got four dudes in there that have been doing time. Like you're not going to keep, like, I don't care who you are. No. Um, So uh, that caught the attention of some other guys. Um, The Aryan brotherhood, right? White supremacists, neo-Nazis. Right. Um, Like I said, like from the outside, you know, looking in, like in our society, yeah, we're going to demonize that. We're going to hate that. Um, but here's the truth, right? If you're a white guy in prison, you want to be on friendly terms with the Aryan Brotherhood, hmm. right? Because when somebody comes to take what's yours or when somebody comes like wanting to mess with you, nobody in the prison system is going to look out for you. Right except for the Aryan Brotherhood. And it's, it's, it's the same ideology, with just a different dress up. Right. You know? Right. Um, and like, so I wanted to understand it, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so a few of these guys, like I had conversations, like trying to understand, like, why do you hold a racial prejudice? Right. You know, because like that, it's not how I was raised. That's not how I grew up. Right. And it just, it never made sense to me. And the truth is they don't, Hmm. right? Like I watch those guys break bread with other races, you know, like I watch those guys carry on friendships with other races and it's another situation where they wanted an identity, Hmm. right? They wanted something to belong to. They wanted something to be a part of that was bigger than themselves so that they could bring some form of meaning into their life. Right. And prison, that's what everybody's trying to do, right? Like, uh, like the Bloods, okay? Bloods, no white members, no affiliation with white people, right? Right. Dude, one of my best friends in prison was a Blood. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Right. It's just this like absurd, like we have nothing. So we have to create rules for for us to live by. Right. Right. We have to create things that can separate us and give us an identity. Yeah. Um, And like, that's to say nothing of, of what could be. Right. Like one thing that I thought about my entire time in prison was like, what if we tore down all of these different ideological constructs? Right. Right. What if we annihilated the blood's belief system and the gangster disciples belief system and the Aryan brotherhood's belief system? And what if we acknowledge that we are all in the same situation? Hmm. We are all on the same team here. Right. Right. And the reason SCDC doesn't stop gang activity 
is because they know what could potentially happen if they do. Hmm. Right. If we're fighting amongst ourselves, we're not going to turn and look at SEDC and challenge them. Right. right. Their job is to, to control the gang violence, to prevent riots from happening. Right. Right. But if there is no gang violence, if there are no riots happening, right. Then uh, when we're locked in a cell for three months straight, getting out twice a week, 15 minutes for showers and phone calls, if we're all in the same theme in that situation, it's not going to fly. Right. But if we're using those 15 minutes to go try and steal a cell phone from this dude down here, or if we're using those 15 minutes to go stab this guy over here because we sent him $500 on PayPal and he didn't give us what we paid for, hmm. then we're not looking at the system demanding change. Right. Right. And the worst part of everything relating to prison is that as a society, we are leaving our fellow human beings behind that wall to suffer for no good purpose. Right. Because prison doesn't rehabilitate. Um, this, uh, my first day at RE, um, this guy, he had a life sentence. He comes in and he gives sort of like a welcome to prison pep talk. Right. Right. You know, the idea behind it is like, Hey, you're here. It sucks, but make the most of it. God loves you. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, so he came off with this statistic. I didn't believe it at first, right? That the South Carolina Department of Corrections has an 85% recidivism rate. And what that means is 85% of the people who go to prison and get out are going back for a second time. God. That is a terrible number. So I'm looking around my entire time. I'm looking around my entire time and I'm knowing that eight out of the every 10 people I meet eight of them are coming back. Um, mm. And I, at, first, at first I couldn't understand why. Right. Like at first, like it literally made no sense. Like day one, I've already decided I'm never going back. Right. If I make it through this, never in my life will I even think about doing something that would, that would bring me back here. Um, but yet eight out of 10 are going back. And again, like as a society, like the way we have demonized drug addiction and the way we have made it not just acceptable, but the way we have made it um, a good moral thing to do hmm. to unleash retribution. Right. Yeah. Like society says, well, they're criminals. Like, what do you expect? Criminals are going to commit crime. Of course, drug addicts are going to do drugs. Of course. Right. Right. But my thing is like, nobody's born a criminal. Yeah. You know, like nobody's born a drug addict. Um, and I would argue that you take any human being on the face of this earth, there is a set of circumstances that will lead them to prison. Yeah. Like, I don't care who you are. There are, the, there is the potentiality for life to hit you in such a way that your life spirals to a point where, yes, you can end up in the penitentiary, right? And, like, this is something that, like, I think history testifies to that fact, man. Right. That's 
you look at the atrocities of history and it's like, they weren't different from us, right? Like the Nazis and the Soviets, like uh, Maoist China, it's not like, like they're not some other form of being, like they're human beings. Right. And that potentiality is inherent within every single one of us. Right. And like, I think it's a moral failing on the part of society to not recognize that. Um, because there is no, there is no chance for rehabilitation. Right. And okay, here's what I mean for that. Um, do you, when you say, when you say no chance for rehabilitation, do you mean specifically in prison? Yeah. Yeah, Like there is no, okay. Yeah. There is no opportunity. There is a chance. There is absolutely a chance. Right. Um, I mean, I'm living proof. Of yeah, that, I was going to say. I feel like you've got to be at least a decent example. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so SCDC has a, a drug treatment program called um, ATU, like addiction treatment something. Okay. Um, and it's held on on a certain yard. Um, I tried to get into that. Right. Like I went to the right people and it, it, listen, it took me months to even get a response from anybody. Um, so finally, um, one of the, uh, I can't even remember what they called him, man. Um, basically like your case manager. Mm -hmm. Um, and she told me straight up, like, you're not getting in. And I'm like, okay, why? Like I came here because I have a drug addiction. And she's like, well, no, to get there, you have to be sentenced to it. And it's so like, it's so backlogged that even people who are sentenced to it aren't getting in before they're released. Um, And that's one program. Like that's the only drug addiction program offered in SCDC. And even it's a joke, right? Like I met people who've been through it and it's a joke. Like, but that's what they have. And so it was like me, like, I was trying to find rehabilitation and I couldn't like I was looking for it and it wasn't there. It's unbelievable. And, yeah. <laughs> and so what happened was pretty much I decided, okay, well, if I am going to find some form of rehabilitation, like I have to do it myself. Hmm. Um, and so once I finally adapted the prison life, right. Like once I came to a place where I knew the rules, where I could, where I knew how to carry myself, where I had asserted myself to the point where I can go to the canteen and come back without having to worry about somebody trying to rob me. Right. Um, like that's when I went to work on myself. Like my first six months in prison were tumultuous. Like hmm. it was chaos. I was in a bad place. Right. Um, my first six months in prison, like I thought about suicide a lot. Um, the only reason I didn't try it was because I didn't have a method that I thought had a high enough probability rate for me to risk it. Right. Like, like I knew, like I knew if I tried it and failed, my life was going to suck the rest of my time. Right. Right. I would be in locked up in a cell by myself, you know, bare minimum, bare minimum of food a day. And I just, I didn't want to do that. Um, but I was in a really bad place. Um, 
and finally I realized there was no help, you know, um, nobody was responding to the SOS. Like I was on my own. Um, so I started reading, um, like I've always read, like as from the time I learned to read, I've been a book nerd. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah. I didn't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say, uh, I mean, you've always been extremely smart, but, uh, earlier when, before you said that you and you and your friend went and decided to rob, uh, the pharmacy that you robbed, you said, y'all did your research. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like, honestly, that I, obviously I know you and, and your friend. So I was like, yeah. that sounds exactly like y'all would be the criminals that did your research. <laughs> <laughs> you just would be I was, I, um, I've been thinking about that because I that was just funny yeah but. yeah uh and you know just like that was something uh guys I met in prison like when I told that story like pretty much the same response wait y'all what y'all what you read yeah. into it yeah I was what? like listen man yeah you can find the pharmacist manual online where they learn how to respond to robbery <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's, but oh, it, that's, man. yeah. I was just going to say, if there was anybody I, <laughs> I would know, that'd be like, yeah, I did my research. That's, that's funny. But anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> you started oh, to read. Yeah. So, like, I was looking at it, it's like, okay, so, like, what are the tools I need to get out of here and never come back? Right. And first and foremost, I knew that I had to conquer my addiction. Right. Right. Because I knew if I got out and went back to heroin, I was done. Right. I'm either going to die or I'm coming back to prison. And I had the resolve to die before I ever went back. Hmm. Um, and at this point in time, I didn't particularly want to die. Right. I, like I said, I'd adapted the prison at this point. Um, I wasn't okay, but I could see a light way down at the end of the tunnel. Right. Um, and so I started looking for answers. Right um started in the bible you know like that's what i grew up with that's what i was founded on um prison is not the place to look for god hmm. right like i saw people in prison who clung to god like with all they had um i saw authentic faith in prison and i also saw jailhouse faith right like I saw people who would walk around with their Bibles, but you have a conversation with them and you know, all right, this dude's coming back. Right. Mm. Like it's not there. It's not genuine. Um, and you look around you in prison and it's like, there is nothing that says there is a loving and merciful God there. Right. right? Like, the reality is like you're in a world where you can get stabbed over a roll of toilet paper, right? Like that's your reality. The reality is you're in a world where you cannot step out of your cell for four, five, six months at a time. Right. Um, and so I felt like that's not quite going to do it. So I got to find something else. Hmm. Um, so I got into philosophy, right? because there has to be something higher. There has to be something bigger than me that can pull me out of the mess I've created for myself. Right. That, that's, that was the question I was trying to answer. Right. Um, and 
uh, one thing I did, right? Like every now and then we would get to go to the library, right? But you might not see the library for two months, right? You could check out two books at a time. And I knew if we got to go, I might not be back for a long time. So what I did was I paid people to come with me, right? Huh. Listen, you come with me to the library. I hand you two books. You check them out. We get back. I pay you a honey bun or a soup or whatever you want. Right. I'll give you $2 worth of canteen to come check out two books, right? So <laughs> in my cell, dude, I had stacks. I do. I had Kershaw's library. In my cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's no, so I, funny. Dude, I'll never forget. Um, I can't remember the officer's name, but uh, she, she was the one that ran the library. And when I got there, they had a, um, they had a great books of the Western world collection, mm -hmm. right? Never been checked out, right? Not a single stamp in the back. All right. Well, we walk in there one day and there's eight, nine of us. And every single one of us is walking out with <laughs> books from the great books of the Western world. <laughs> and we're walking out. She goes, I know y'all ain't reading that. I don't know what you're doing. With it. <laughs> oh, and meanwhile, they're all getting, yeah, they're all getting paid off by one guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I was reading dude, And like, like that's what saved my life hmm. in prison, right? Like every single day in prison, there was the temptation to wake up and start hating the world. Every single day, there's the temptation to wake up and take revenge on the world for what had happened to me. Hmm. Um, and I just like, like, I knew that if I let it, prison would make me a monster. Right. Like I knew that I know it. Like I know my name prison has the potential to make you into a monster, not a bad person, someone that will live their lives to take revenge on being on reality. Yeah. And that scared me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's um, terrifying. Cause I'm sure you probably see it with all of the people that you're in there with, like there's probably so many people that give into that temptation while they're there. Yeah. Like, like you don't stab somebody over a roll of toilet paper. Like that's a real event, by the way. Like I saw that happen. Um, two roommates, dude thought his cellmate stole his toilet paper. So dude was sitting on the bench on the rock in the middle of the dorm and his cellmate walked behind him with a knife and I mean just went to town. Golly. Right. And like that wasn't about a roll of toilet paper. Right. He like the only the he was taking revenge right. on the world for what he felt like had happened to him. Hmm. Like there's nothing else that makes sense. He wasn't insane. He wasn't a psychopath. He was taking revenge. Right. And I didn't want that to become me. Hmm. So when I opened up those books, right? Like when I looked into Aristotle and Kant and Hegel, like I wasn't like reading to learn. Like I was literally reading to save my life. Yeah. Right. Um, when I, when I read um, Hannah Arendt's origins of, to of totalitarianism, huh. 
I was reading that to save my life, right? Because in that situation where I had been victimized because of my race, hmm. I glimpsed the potential within me to take revenge for that. And I did not want that to happen. So I wanted to understand what takes people down that road. And I did. Yeah. Because, like I said, I wasn't reading to learn. I wasn't reading so I could sound smart, so I can impress people with this fact and a quote from this philosopher. Like, no, like, I'm trying not to die and I'm trying not to become a monster. Yeah. Like, it was that serious. Um, and by the time I left prison, like, I felt good, you know? Like, I felt like I felt like I had been away from heroin for so long that I was going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but what I did was I underestimated the anger that I was holding on to mm. for every single minute I spent back there. And I came home and it's like, I still don't have the words to properly describe it, right? Because it's not like, in an instant when you feel angry, like it was my state of being, I was just mad. And it took me, I don't even think it took me two weeks to relapse after two and a half years in prison. I relapsed within two weeks, um, overdosed again. Uh, cause well, the heroin had changed up, like everything's cut with fentanyl now. Hmm. So overdosed again, um, and it's like, I, I had tried to assemble this belief system, right? Like to where I could justify my time in prison and believe optimistically that I could have a future. Right. right. But I came home, I was 23 years old, right? I had a GED. Um, I'm a convicted felon, no job. And I'm looking around and it's like everybody I had known had passed me by. Hmm. And it's like, it's not that I'm not keeping up. It's like, I'm not even in the race, you know? Hmm. Um, and dude, when I relapsed, I just fell so low. And like the belief system I thought I had assembled in prison, it just came crashing down, oh, dude. Collapse. When it, yeah, when it met the real world, it didn't stand up. Um, and because my belief system didn't stand up, I didn't stand up. And um, I finally came to a point where I was like, you know what? Like, I just don't want to do this anymore. Hmm. You know? Um, and, you know, when I've talked to people about my suicide attempt, right? Like, I try and explain it with this like distinguishing sentence, right? It's not that I wanted to die, but rather it's that I just didn't want to live anymore. And that might not make a lot of sense, but that's the, that's the best way for me to describe it. Right. Um, I was just looking at life, man. And it's like, you know what, like if it doesn't get better than this, if I just sat in the penitentiary for two and a half years to come home to this, yeah. Like, why? like, well, yeah, like, why is that mm. worth anything? Um, 
And I, I couldn't find an answer to that. I couldn't answer the question to like, why? Um, so I wrote a letter uh, to my parents and I put a, I put a gram of heroin in my body. And what was supposed to be the last day of my life. Um, And now that I think about it, that's the third defining moment of my life. Hmm. Because I didn't die. Um, well, in a sense, like, yeah, like a part of me did die that day. Um, physically, no, obviously. Um, but yeah, like, I think in a very real sense, like a part of me, like, yeah, um, I did kill a part of myself that day. Um, and I think what I killed that day was the part of me that had started to hate the world. Um, so that happened and I came home on parole, right? Which means I'm still under, you know, government supervision. Um, so I'm sitting in the hospital and I can't leave right. because you know, my uh, parole agent had placed a hold order on me. Um, and I ended up being sent to a program called life recovery. Um, it's an inpatient program, right? It is in J. Ruben Long, which is the county jail. Um, and it's a, hey, you're a drug addict. We're going to try and help you get your life together. And um, I was mad, right? Like I'd just done two and a half years. I'd, I hadn't even been out 30 days, man. Two and a half years, hadn't been out 30 days. And I was going back to jail, right? I hadn't committed a new crime, but I violated my parole by, you know, doing drugs right. and trying to kill myself. Um, but because of the the intent behind it, they didn't want to send me back to prison. Um, so I ended up in life recovery and I went into life recovery, like optimistic, you know, like nothing else has worked. So why not? Right. Right. And one thing I knew at this point in my life was that I could not save myself. Hmm. Um, I did not have the power within me to cope with my grief, to be, to put my addiction behind me and to step up and face the world. Right. Like, I couldn't do it. I had tried. I had tried everything, right? Um, so it was like, you know what? Maybe there's something here. Hmm. Um, and two things during this time in my life are what saved me, right? Um, or let me phrase that a little differently two things during this time are what led me to the point where I could be saved. All right. Um, one was the program itself, right? It, there's nothing special about it. Um, it's going to be whatever you make of it. You know, like you go in there just trying to, you know, get through, you'll get through. Um, but if you go in there and you try and like use the tools presented, like you can actually do something. Um, but it was that, and it was the time I had. Um, 
because one thing about Jay, it was peaceful, hmm. right? Um, Which I feel like is the peaceful. polar opposite of your experience in prison, right? Yeah. Um, and that was a big adjustment too. Huh. Like I went in the recovery, like I was stepping on the yard and they told me like, like the other guys in there, they told me like, listen, like you can't act like that in here. Like they will. <laughs> see you prison. Man. Yeah. And so like, it was like a hold on, like, okay. Um, so I had the time, um, I was still reading. Um, I started writing. Um, and what I started writing was, I started writing with the intent of writing about myself from a third person perspective. Right. Hmm. Like I was trying to think like, okay, what would Sigmund Freud say about this decision I made, you know, and just trying to analyze it and come at it from different angles to figure out what was going on. Um, and so like the life recovery program, it is grounded in, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? A 12 step program. Mm -hmm. That's what life recovery is going to teach you. Um, is it faith-based? Is it like behind any type of Christian faith? Okay. So they play a funny game with that recovery, right? Because a lot of people are turned off to religion and the idea mm -hmm. of God. Um, so the AA program, yeah. Um, it is grounded in faith-based principles, right? Um, but they don't ever explicitly use the word God or Christianity. Okay. okay. Right. It makes they sense. Term, right. They use the term higher power. Okay. Right. And they play it off as like your dog could be your higher power. You know, like if you're depressed and drinking every morning and you have a dog to take care of, right. Your dog's freezing. You get out of bed. Right. So you can feed it and take it out. And that's gotcha. kind of the, okay. Right. Um, so, the first step in the 12 step programs is something along the lines of uh, came to believe that we were powerless over our addiction and our lives had become unmanageable. Right. Right. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Like I can get on board with that. Um, no doubt I'm powerless over my addiction and obviously I can't manage my life. I was out less than 30 days and here I am, hmm. you know, not only did I relapse, but then I just, I, then I decided to try and kill myself. You know, something's wrong right? Um, that I can't fix. Um, and then like the second step is, uh, uh, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, and that's the one that tripped me up. Right. Mm. Because like through all this time, I never stopped asking the God question. Right. Um, and like, I've read, um, I hadn't read every book that Nietzsche wrote, but I'd read his, you know, must reads. Like I'd read Beyond Good and Evil. I'd read The Antichrist, Twilight of the Idols. Um, I'd read Schopenhauer, like <clears throat> these towering intellects. Right. Oops, sorry. <clears throat> these, uh, these towering intellects who, said you know what there is no god there's no mm -hmm. room for god in the universe um and part of me just never bought it um and so like i'm in this weird place where it's like everything i've worked on for the last few years had been working to build 
a belief system that worked that I could live on without God. And then I'm looking at the factual evidence of my life of what that had led to. Right. Um, and so I was in this really weird place. Um, and like, I'd gone all over with the God questions, right? Like I'd gone from a place where I didn't believe there was a God or anything transcendent to a place where it's like, who cares that there is, right? right? I'm going to do what I want to do because this is what my life has been. You know, if you're not happy, so be it. Um, and I'm never one to tell people what to believe. Right. For me, like all I care about is why do you believe it? Right. right. Like, did you inherit your belief system? Like, did you just adopt it from your parents or did your friends bring it in and you thought, okay, cool. Or like, did you wrestle with it? Right. Like to me, that's what matters. Right. Um, and so all I can speak of is the belief system that saved my life. Right. Is in a very profound sense, the only thing I've ever experienced that is real, hmm. right? Like no atheist I have ever read has presented a structure that is real, that I can take and adopt in my life and live on. Um, and I can tell you the book that led me to a place where I was willing to say, you know what, maybe there is something to God, right? Um, if you know anything about philosophy, you know, Martin Heidegger was not a Christian, no. right? No, he was not. Martin, <laughs> right. Like Martin Heidegger, like this dude, like hardcore atheist, right? He's up there with Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. And like, right. he wrote, he wrote a book called being in time. Um, and in life recovery, um, I thought, why not? I wanted a challenge, right? I wanted something that I could put my mind towards something that would occupy my time and my thought process. So I went with Heidegger, right? I'd read about him, but I had never read mm. him. So being in time is the book that led me to a place where I can say, you know what? Yeah, like, absolutely. I do believe in a God, right? And I do believe that there is truth to the Bible. Like it wasn't the Bible itself. It wasn't Sunday school. It wasn't Christians coming into the jail that that took me to a place where I would be willing to go down that road. It was an atheist huh. that took me down that road. Which was probably the uh, absolute opposite of his intent when he was writing the book. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. And like, I didn't just say, okay, you know what? I didn't like pray the sinner's prayer and say, okay, I'm good now. Like right. cheap faith, like it ain't going to work with me. Like I think way too much. Like I am way too analytical to mm. just take something at face value. Um, and like I said, like I can't ever tell anybody what to believe. All I know is what my reality is. And this is the belief system that has me sitting here right now today. Right. You know, um, like 
my time in life recovery, I spent wrestling with God, you know, um, I had always underestimated the Bible, right? It was a book I grew up with, a book I heard preached every Sunday. It was, it was arbitrary and it was full of, you know, cool mythical stories like, you know, Noah and the ark and this and right. that. But like, I never took it seriously. Hmm. Um, but then like, I started looking at it like, okay, like this book's been around for over 2000 years, right? This book is in a very real sense, like shaped Western culture. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. like maybe there's something to it, you know, like maybe there's some wisdom in here. Maybe there's something in here that I don't know. Um, and like I said, like, that's the belief system that saved my life. Hmm. And that's the belief system that has me in a place where I can honestly say that I am happy and that I enjoy being alive for the first time since 2010. Right. Hmm. And the journey to get there, like it's not probable, right? No, it's not like I intentionally took my mind to places that would discourage me from pursuing any religion whatsoever. Like I did that intentionally because I felt like religion had failed me. Right. Right. And so like, I've thought about like, what would I say to people who are like questioning their belief system? Right. And to that, I would say, maybe it's not the belief that's letting you down or failing you but maybe it's the way you've been taught that belief, right? Maybe it's those responsible for helping you in that belief who have let you down. Um, because to me, like there's more truth in the metaphysical structure of the world presented by Christianity than anything I've ever read, right? Like nothing, Marxism sounds cool, right? Like on paper, it sounds. It, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a fantastic idea. Like, man, wouldn't this be great? But it doesn't have the motive force hmm. to bring people to act in a manner that will manifest that ideal on right. earth. Right, right. It lacks something. It does. Um, and. Like to me, like there is no idea that I can live my life on, right? There is no idea that's going to keep me sober, right? There is no other idea that's going to keep me alive. Um, and so, like, the journey to get to that point was hell, yeah, right? It was absolute hell, and I'm glad it was right. Because one thing I've learned is that like, there is profound value in suffering, hmm. right? Like as human beings, we don't like suffering. We don't like when things make us uncomfortable. Um, if something makes us feel bad, we want it to stop as soon as possible. Right. Right. We chase pleasure. Like that's why we take the Instagram photos. 
That's why we hit the retweet button. Like we want that dopamine hit. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't forge your character, right? Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't help you structure yourself to face reality. Um, But suffering does. Um, Like when you undergo hardship and trials, like you learn who you are in the most profound sense possible. Um, Like I'll tell you this, um, I always suspected that I was a coward, right? Um, Like I always thought that deep down I would get into a situation where I would turn around and run away from it. when I was at Kershaw, um, long story short, um, a gang member stole my TV, right? Went in my room when I was in the shower, walked out with my TV. Um, somebody saw it happen, came and told me I knew who it was. Um, I approached him about it. He gave it back, right? So it's all good. But that's not how it works in prison, you know? Like he went into my room without me in there. Right. Like that's, that's a cardinal sin. And if I let that go, I'm giving permission to anyone for anyone to do that because there's no consequence. Right. Um, so I confronted him about it and he's a gang member. So the situation was like, okay, you can get your round with him. You can get your fight in him, but it's on our terms. Mm -hmm. And, I stepped into a cell with with eight gangster disciples standing in it. Um, and I stepped in knowing what was about to happen. Right. Um, but I stepped in, you know, and physically, that's the most pain I've ever been in in my life. Right. But like, that choice in that moment, like I never have to question whether or not I have the courage to meet a given situation ever again. Right. Right. Because there was a situation where I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't know how bad it was going to get. And I stepped in anyway. And like prison itself, right. The suffering and the isolation, like, I know exactly who I am. I know. I know the the good that I am capable of producing, right? Just through everyday thought and action. And like, it's the suffering I've been through that has produced that. Right. Um, and like, we live in a world that doesn't want to suffer and understandably so, but I wonder like, what are we missing by that? Um, like, I feel like we are, we're deprived of privation and like, I feel like you just, you look around and you see that, you know? Um, but like, and I can only speak for me personally, but it's like, in a very real sense, like I wish it hadn't happened, but it did. And I'm grateful for it. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that obviously suffering is incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, just objectively so, but there is also this, this portion of suffering this portion of difficulty that allows you a completely new and different perspective that you never would have had without the suffering actually being there. And it's interesting that I think you're saying a lot of this because the Bible talks a lot about suffering. It's one of one of one of the big subjects of the Bible. And what is to me incredibly interesting about the Bible and about Christianity as a whole is that it, it almost purports that suffering is is necessary and not that suffering is something that you should seek out actively, but suffering is something that you should almost be uh, joyful for when you're when you encounter it. And see, like, I think there's truth in that, right? Like when, uh, when Jesus says, um, to take up your cross and follow me, like, I don't think that's metaphor, right? Like the cross is literally a symbol of suffering, right? you know? And so like, you don't go looking for it, but when it comes, you shoulder it, you embrace it and you meet it head on and you power through it. And what happens is you experience a level of being that you weren't before. Like it's, it's, it's a crucible. Like what is that? Fire purifies, you know? Mm. And so when you go through the fire, you come out a purer, stronger, better version of who you are before that. Yeah. And like you said, it's a theme everywhere in the Bible. And like, I think to reach like, what a human being is supposed to be right like we all have an ideal right um and like like there is worth in the life of every single human being right but i also think there is a nobility to what it means to be human and that's not something that everyone just has inherently right like i feel like that's something you have to step out and chase Hmm. right And part of achieving that sort of nobility, that dignity of what it means to be human is to, is to not just like go through trials, but to suffer and to use it, right? Like there's potentiality in everything and in suffering, there's a dual potentiality, right? right? Like, it's like the expression make you or break you like that's what suffering's potentiality is yeah right? absolutely it can, break it can shatter your world it can tear you down but it can also make you something that you never thought you were capable of and it's only by undergoing that deliberately and courageously that you can ever achieve like anything of worth right like when it's all said and done like the world's not going to remember how much money you made or how high you rose in your job but if you suffer with nobility right if you walk through fire and embrace life because of it like if you look to your fellow human beings and say like listen like this is what we're supposed to be 
like like i think that's when like humanity's at its brightest yeah it's not it's not self-serving morality you know it's not changing your facebook profile picture to support a movement like it has to be real and it has to involve sacrifice of some sort yeah you know? absolutely yeah and sacrifice in, in so many ways is key it is um so let me ask you this then and we've we've gone from the very beginning kind of where it all starts with matthew passing away and then we are kind of at the place where you're at now, post-prison, you, you know, have found the Lord, you're, you're growing, you're moving towards that. When reflecting on your time in prison as, you know, kind of in a lot of ways, the second like big factor that kind of changed you, what, you talked a lot about it, but like, what do you think are things that the criminal justice system in America needs to improve on? in order to make more stories like the 15%, right? The people like you that are not a part of that, that 85% that end up continuing to go back over and over again. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I think before, I think first and foremost, there has to be a, um, a change within our society at large before anything positive can happen. Right. Um, because even if you get out of prison, right, to do the right thing, you're in a world that you're you're less than, right? Yeah. Like I don't consider, like I don't feel like I'm a citizen, right? I can't vote. Um, on the back of my driver's license, there's uh, there's three letters, right? CBO, convicted violent offender. Mm. Um, if I need to go fill out a job application there's going to be a box that says have you been convicted of a felony right um our society looks at criminals as less than citizens and as long as we hold on to that attitude like if we don't acknowledge that a human is a human is a human then there's going to be people trying to turn their lives around who are going to be so discouraged by the obstacles they have to climb over that it's going to fall apart. Like I was lucky, right? Because I had, I had a support system coming out, right? Like I have a fantastic family structure. Um, I have a good community structure. Like I had something to, to fall back on. But dude, so many people I was locked up with have nobody right. and nothing. So when they get out, they're going home to nothing. And they're going home to a society that doesn't want them. Um, but as far as like rehabilitation, like what needs to happen? Education. Hmm. Like if we can start educating our prison population, will change the world. And I don't say that sentence lightly, right? Um, the United States incarcerate, like we have like the X largest, you know, population in the world, right? But per capita, we incarcerate like, oh, I dropped the statistic. Um, well, we have the highest incarceration percentage 
per capita in the entire world. Right? Yeah, per capita. And it's something like higher than like the first like 10 countries combined per capita. Uh, oh, but, man. I literally just I just read it. I think it's the top 22. Um, yeah, it's, it's something crazy. But um, so anyway, like we, we, we've normalized incarceration. Um, we have a prison system that is set up for profit. Right. Mm -hmm. The private prison industry is a billion dollar industry. And like what that means is corporations have a financial incentive to not only send people to prison, but to keep them there and to keep them there for a long time. Right. And like as far as politics goes, nothing makes me angrier than that right there. It's unbelievable. Like, it, 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 yeah. it blows my mind. And it, it, it is so infuriating that even that the yeah. idea that even pri a privatized prison system would even like come close to making sense. But and I think I think a lot of it, though, kind of harkens back to what you're talking about, where it's like a lot of felons and a lot of people that are especially drug addicts are is absolutely lumped into that category where they're viewed at as less than human or less than citizens at the very, very most. Right. And there's this idea of we can privatize our prison system and let's at least make some money on these people that are less than, less than, you know, worth less than everybody else. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, like the question that like has stuck with me is okay. Think about the manpower we have sitting in the American prison system. Right. Like, Unbelievable. Like, like what is that potential, right? Like what if they were to become productive citizens? What if they were to come to a place where they could turn around and contribute to society? Right. Right. Like, like what could we as a country be capable of if we were to reach into our prison system and turn that into productive citizens that we could help to boost our society. Right. You know? And, um, but if, if, if you start educating prisoners, right. Because so many have a narrow, narrow worldview, right? Like there's so many people who've never left their hometown, right? All they know is the street. All they know is, the gang that they grew up with, right? Like they don't know anything different. And so one thing I found, right, was like, I, like in prison, I always talk to people, like I believe you were capable of understanding what I had to say, right? right? Like I never like intentionally dumbed it down to a comprehensible level. And what I found more often than not was it wasn't people saying, Hey, yeah, listen, uh, -uh that, that's too much. But it was more of the sense that they wanted to be able to understand, right. Yeah. What I was saying, what I was talking about. Um, and, uh, at Kershaw, I started a book club, right. Hmm. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. I started a book club um, and I started with the book Gates of Fire. Um, we ended up with three copies, so it had to be like passed around. Um, and the reason I chose that book was because everybody in prison thinks they're a warrior, right? But for the wrong reason. 
Um, and in this book, Gates of Fire, it, it's a historical, it's, it's fiction, but it's a historicalized fiction account of the Spartans at Thermopylae. Huh. Um, and you sort of grow up with a Spartan boy as he goes through his training into becoming a Spartan warrior. And it culminates at the Battle of Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans died right. to the man facing the Persians, right? And, and I'll just say this, like, I will recommend that book to any and everyone. Um, if I had it my way, it would be mandatory reading for every boy at age 16. Huh. Um, like, there's so much to draw on from that book. Yeah. And... So what I did was I basically tried to teach, right, the idea of the warrior ethos to a positive purpose, right? Like, and so like we go through, like everybody reads at a different pace. Some people are just there for the class, right? They're just there to be a part of the conversation. They haven't gotten to read the book yet. Um, and like, it's, anybody can be violent right mm. anybody can be dangerous but it takes a certain strength and nobility of character to be what i would consider constructively dangerous right and um what i mean by that is like how do you take risk right how do you step out into the chaos that is life and produce anything resembling order without the mindset of a warrior laying somewhere in there right, right. like there, there is um there's a challenge to that yeah because it's 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 easy to back down when life presents challenges um and so with these guys, my challenge to them, right, what I was trying to get them to take up the warrior mantle for was to better themselves, right? And I approached it with the idea of, listen, like, it's easy for you to sit here and get high every day, right? It's easy for you to waste your time doing nothing, to waste your time at the car table, right? And so I'm like, listen, like, like, those of you that are here, like what you're doing now, like this is hard, right? Because what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to like reckon with you, you know? And like for people like that, like what could be scarier, you know? Yeah. Um, like when you've done horrible things and you know you've done horrible things, like to come to terms with that, to face that, that's hard. Um but what's even harder is for them to accept the idea that they are capable of good. Hmm. Um, that is I, an idea that it is hard for them to grasp because their entire life they've been marginalized, right? They were the kid in school that got sent to the principal's office. They were the kid who got sent to alternative school. They were the kid who got kicked out of school and went the juvie you know yeah and so like they've never had any sense that they were capable of anything good um and so i was trying to figure out okay how do i get them to buy into that and the best idea i came up with was presented as a fight right presented as something that 
they are going to have to step up and conquer that they are going to have to face head on because that they know how to do. Yeah. Um, and dude, I'll tell you, like, like I'm out of prison. Right. But like my heart's still behind the fence with those boys hmm. because I've seen the potential sitting back there. Um, listen, uh, I had book like an SEDs, you can have books sent to you. Right. Um, and so like I would get books sent in, I'd read them, I'd read them four five, six times, highlight the crap out of them, write in the margins, whatever. And, you know, people would ask me like, you know, like, what are you reading? You know, tell them, you know, I'd let people borrow this and that. And, um, uh, if, I was very protective of my books, right? Like oh, I want to make sure to you're going to, yeah, yeah. I want to make sure you're going to take care of it. And, uh, but when I started coming up to parole, man, like a couple of people asked me about a couple of different books and, um, I was like, you know what, man, you can keep that. Right. Um, I gave one book away. Um, it was called escape from freedom by Eric Fromm. And in that book, basically it's Eric Fromm, uh, taking the tools of psychoanalysis to look at the problem of authoritarianism, right? Like trying to answer the question of why human beings submit to authoritarian systems. Um, it's a complex book. It's a heavy book, right? Especially for somebody that doesn't read books, doesn't understand ideas. Um, but uh, I was talking about that book and, um, one of my buddies, uh, his name is OB. He, uh, he asked me, uh, if he could have that book, right? Well, I gave it to him and, um, I got a message from him on Facebook about four or five months ago. He's still in prison. Um, but he sent me a message on Facebook saying that he finally made it through that book. And when he did, he wanted to find me on Facebook and let me know that he finished it. Cause I told him I'd give it to him on the condition that he read it cover to cover. Right. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Like he's early thirties. Um, he's been a gang member since he was probably 12, 13 years old. Um, he's got some time, but one day he's coming home. Right. right. And dude, there's potential in him. Just like there is potential in every single inmate back there. Right. Well, and that's what, that's what makes me, it makes me think a lot about like how you, I I think you said like you, you talked about education, like educating people that are, that are in federal prisons or in state prisons, like whatever it looks like, but how, what's the best way to tap into that potential? right? Is it just give these guys a bunch of books? Like what, what is the best way to be able to help them feel because they're not lazy, right? Like there's a reason why, there's a reason why he took that book. It took him however long, read it cover to cover and wanted to make sure that you knew, right? That he Mm -hmm. read through that book cover to cover, right? These people are not lazy. They're, they're people that uh, have, they're incredibly passionate, right? They're passionate about mm-hmm. sometimes maybe things that they probably shouldn't be passionate about. Right. But yeah. they are, <laughs> but they are people that are driven, right? They're not procrastinators. Like they, they are, they want to be able to see the things that they want to get done, get done. 
And so like, how do you tap into that potential? And you know what, like that right now, that's the question. Um, And I don't think there's a good answer to that. I have ideas, but I don't have a program to lay out and say, this is how you rehabilitate prisoners. Um, I know that, I know that first you have to convince them one that they're capable of it and two that they have a life that's worth it. Hmm. Right. Because that is such a huge obstacle is guys. I can't tell you how many conversations I had that went down to the effect of like, why would I do this when I'm just going to be a felon when I get out? Right. I'm going to go work some minimum wage job, flipping burgers at McDonald's like what kind of life am I going to have? Like, why am I going to work so hard back here when that's what's waiting on me out there? Right. Um, And like something to consider, man, let's like, I would, I look at, okay, well, what incentive does society have to change that situation? Um, 95% of prisoners are getting out one day. Right. That means 95% of the people sitting in our prison systems right now are coming back into our society one day. Right. Who do you want coming back? Right. Do you want the guy who spent years of his life gangbanging, fighting, doing drugs, doing illegal activity? Or do you want the guy who spent his time becoming convinced that he is a life worth living? that he has something to contribute to society that is positive and constructive, mm. you know? Yeah. And like, that's a fantastic that, point. Yeah. And like with that mindset, like that's how we answer the question of how, right. It takes, I think it's going to take a collective effort to figure out what needs to be done in order to institute a rehabilitation system that works. Yeah. We need ideas from side we need opinions and perspectives that we don't have because our society doesn't believe it's a conversation worth having right you know right um but i know first and foremost you have to convince them that they themselves are worth it um because they don't believe it Hmm. They, they see themselves the same way society sees them they see themselves as criminal drug addict gangbangers. Right. That's it. Right. Um, and that's a horrible, that's a horrible place to be. Right. I mean, at, yeah. how can you yeah. possibly feel like you can come back and be a productive member of society when you yeah. feel like society cares nothing for you? Yeah. That's like, like I spent my time in prison trying to make myself into a productive member of society. And I came home and it was instantly like, oh, crap, like I'm not even a human being. Hmm. Um, And it was like me with my support system. I collapsed hard and fast. Right. Like if you don't have that, like what are you going to do? Yeah. Like. Brutal. Yeah. So um, how how are your parents? (laughs) I haven't had the opportunity oh, to ask you. How are Chip yeah. and Melissa? They're amazing people for those that are still listening right now. Amazing yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, no, they're um they're doing really well. Um my dad turns 50 in May. 
and uh, are taking a trip to the Grand Canyon this fall. Um, yeah, so like my dad's getting on an airplane for the first time, um, which if you know my dad, like that's hilarious. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me and Matthew are sitting here laughing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that's exciting. Um, but life's good, man. They're doing yeah. well. Like that really, that's so awesome to hear. It honestly, so. I guess there's this part of me that I think in some of ways, as we kind of wrap up, because we've been going for like two hours right now, which is wild. Um, that Uh, blows my mind, but, um, I, I, I I don't know. I can't even, I can't even say how happy I am to like be sitting here and talking with you because there, um, I guess there's so many times I think talking to your mom and talking to your dad, we're like, um, you know, prayers that I have had and that Matthew has had and our mother yeah. has had, um, for you specifically. And, um, yeah, I don't know, ma'am, being able to see you, uh, happy and doing well is an, is an incredible thing to see. And, and knowing that your family's doing well is, it's encouraging yeah. to say the least. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, it, it, it warms my heart like uh man like you don't know for sure yeah like dude like straight up like when i was writing my suicide letter um this moment right here like i couldn't see that yeah you know what i'm saying like the potential for me to be where i'm at today to be happy to be healthy to be whole to be drug free, to be productive, like that didn't exist, man. Yeah. Um, and like, <clears throat> if you ask me, like, what brought me to this point, um, it begins and ends with faith. Yeah. Like that's it. that's what it all comes down to. You know, do with that what you will. But for me, like, that's my truth. Hmm. And every other truth I've tried has shattered like glass. Um, and I enjoy life and I look forward to seeing what life has to offer. Um, I'm okay with my feelings and my emotions and I don't need to escape that. Um, and it's been a crazy trip. It has been a depressing, dark, dangerous trip, but it has been a trip well worth it. Yeah. And like, if anybody takes anything away from this, um, I would want them to walk away knowing that like, whatever you've got going on, whatever you're looking at, whatever life's throwing at you, like there is a way up. Like there is a way for you to bring the good back into life. Hmm. Um, like being itself like is arbitrary and it can be cruel and harsh, but it can also be the most beautiful, precious thing we have as human beings. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. If you work towards that, if you adhere to that, like it will manifest itself. Um, absolutely. That's uh that's awesome. That's a great word for sure. So I think uh, that's probably a good place to end it. What you think? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, man. I just want to say like, dude, thank you for the opportunity. Like this has been fun. hundred percent, man. Um, I'm so happy to have you on and this will not be the last time for sure. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> we'll definitely have you on again without a doubt. And this was a ton of fun. I feel like most of the time, as talkative as I am, I always end up sitting and just talking and talking and talking. And that's most of my podcast throughout the week. And this time I was yeah. like, I didn't even want to say a word. Like you just carried it. It was, it was so much fun to just sit here and listen to you talk, man. Yeah, dude, I enjoyed it. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. You, man. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it, time, man. Well, uh, we'll definitely be in touch again here soon. All right. All right. Thank you for listening to Split the Difference podcast, written, recorded, and hosted by Austin Taylor. If you're interested in getting in touch with me on Instagram, you can find me at Split the Difference podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and on my website at splitthedifference.com. Production for the intro and outro music done by Rosewood Records Recording Studio. If you're interested in booking or learning more about them, you can reach them on Facebook or Instagram at Rosewood Records SC or on their website, www.rosewoodrecordssc.com. 